Welcome everyone to Seek, Go, Create. This is where we redefine success in leadership, business, and ministry. I kind of affectionately like to say this is where the, the seekers, the goers, and the creators kind of congregate and hang out. And uh, we have a guest today, I'll get to in just a moment. We have a guest today that fits into all of those categories. He has so much going on, so much talent in so many areas. I'm excited about having this conversation. And I'm hopeful you're excited about listening in. Before I get to that, though, I'm going to ask that you continue the conversation that we get started here by going to our website, seekgocreate.com. Make sure we've got your, your best email address so that we can keep you updated on all that's happening with Seek Go Create. And then you can connect with us on all the social channels. We are on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. We're now on Clubhouse, and uh, we're also on Twitter. All of those places we are Seek Go Create. So join with us there, connect, and continue the conversation. Today we have Barry Habib as our guest, and Barry is an American entrepreneur, mortgage, mortgage industry executive, best-selling author, and founder and CEO of MBS Highway. He's a professional speaker and TV commentator on the mortgage and in the mortgage and real estate markets. I'm excited about conversing with him about those. He's a general partner and lead producer of Rock of Ages, which ran for six years on Broadway, one of the longest running shows in Broadway history. He's an, he's an Amazon number one best-selling author. We're going to talk about his book, Money in the Streets, and he's acted in films, sings in a band. He does all kinds of things. Barry, welcome to Seek, Go, Create. Thanks so much for having me, Tim. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. And I, you got so many things that we could have conversations about. I kind of gave you a little bit of prep on this. We give the bios, and your bio could have read so much more. There's so many things that you have going on. But if you and I were just bump into each other somewhere, and I just ask the question, I don't know anything about you, and I say, what do you do? What would you typically tell someone with a bio like that? How would you, how would you actually describe yourself? Well, as a professional speaker and author and trying to help people and CEO of a business that articulates the market conditions for people in mortgage and real estate, shows them the opportunity that's available, helps them evaluate choices that they would make, whether it should I buy this home or what type of loan to take, when to lock their loan in. But then there's kind of a fun side too, where I've produced some shows that have gone worldwide, like Rock of Ages or Chris Angel in Las Vegas. Uh, and, uh, you know, back a few years ago, I did uh, did some acting. I've been in nine um, Hollywood films with speaking roles. Also, had my own show on CNBC for 13 years, but been a frequent resource for CNBC and Fox and Bloomberg and and other networks, NBC and many other networks that I've been on. So uh, I've been very blessed, been very lucky to to have these opportunities. Uh, so there you have it in kind of a little elevator speech as to <laughs> some of the things that I've done. Yeah. And the cool thing about that, Barry, is that those are some things, I don't know if maybe you recognize this, that those are some things that in many people's lives, they don't all fit together. And so I, I want to talk about that in a, in a, in a little while. I, I've, I've read through your book and we'll talk about that uh, towards the end here. You know, but... it's, you know, it's interesting, Tim, as you mentioned that I get that a lot, you know, people's, you know, if, if you meet somebody and they speak like four or five different languages, you say, oh, wow, isn't that interesting? But then when it comes to business, they want to pigeonhole you into a little. Uh, so, no, it, it, listen, there's certain things that if you do it across one thing, like, look, we have pretty simple philosophies. I spoil my customers and spoil my employees. And if you just start with that as a core value, 
um, you can you can get into different lines of 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 work. You know, had a medical imaging business, and we could talk about you know the cornerstone of success there was removing a point of friction. Same thing with one of the companies that I built and sold called Mortgage Market Guide. Also with Rock of Ages to make the customer experience so much better. We remove points of friction, and some of them we pioneered. So as I said, we can talk about any of those removing points of friction, but that's very important in. Uh, in any business and those things hold true. You want to give a great customer experience, a great employee experience. And if you start with that and put a lot of work behind it, um, you have really good foundation to go across any business line that you want. You know, there's no limits there. Yeah, I love the thought. And, and I think we'll definitely dive into that later on where we, we look at the principles that really cross all of those, I guess that range of of business in the spectrum that you bring up. But I kind of one of the first questions I would love to ask Barry, I think it's something that grabbed my attention. And, and I think the listener would love to hear your comments and thoughts on this because you have been uh, someone who's asked about, uh, you know, the, the future or what, what the current state of the markets are and what is going on in, in real estate, mortgages, all of these industries that are, that are really close to everyone out in not just Wall Street, but obviously Main Street America. I would love to tap into your wisdom and just say, you know, at the time of us recording this, we're 12 months into, uh, you know, an event that, uh, you know, pandemic worldwide. There's a lot of unique and interesting things going on in the economy. Real estate market seems to be really heated up. And I, I would just love for us to have some conversation briefly here because this is the thing that intrigues me the most, because I'm kind of like you. I think a lot about a lot of different sectors and things that are going on. How do you assess what's happening right now? And, and what are you seeing happening in the not too distant and possibly distant future with just business, mortgages, real estate, anything that you would like to share that your your data and all the research you're doing is showing you? Well, let's start with real estate. You know, we've had a lot of really good success in forecasting both real estate and mortgage rates. Solo, I've got two crystal balls behind me for being the most accurate forecaster in the U.S. in that realm. Only person who's won it twice. So I'm very proud of that for 2018, 2020, but been a top 10 finisher uh, for six years. So, and that's, uh, th there's all the big names out there. So, you know, the, your Goldman Sachs, your Bank of America, your Wells Fargo, et cetera. And then there's a little old us. So, uh, we, we've had a good a good idea as to where real estate values would be going uh, when everybody else thought that they were uh, going to continue on fire. We correctly called the turning point in the, in the housing market in 2006, at the end of 2006. And we correctly, I was on CNBC and they fought with me. In December of 2011, you could pull up the clip where I said the housing market's about to turn and they all yelled at me and didn't believe it, but that was the exact bottom. And then you know, recently in, in seeing what's going on in the, in the housing market, so many people are talking about you know, things with forbearance and foreclosure and uh, risks to the market or prices are accelerating or incomes are not keeping up. They just don't look at the right metrics. Uh, look, the real estate market's very hot. It's not easy to find a home today. In many cases, you have to pay asking price or over. If you can do it with some good resources like we provide, you can evaluate correctly whether you should pay over asking price many times you have to but this market's going to continue uh we just have if you look at the laws of economics it's too much demand not enough supply builders are not keeping up they're not going to keep up and the demand is going to continue one of the key one of the key metrics that you want to look at is who's coming to the marketplace who's going to give you the demand and that is going to be the median age of a first-time home buyer is 33 years old 
So what you want to do is look back at birth rates from 33 years ago. It seems simple, but not very many people think about this. You know, <laughs> we're kind of the only ones who would think about looking at demographics and birth rates. So when you do, you could see birth rates from 1988, 1989, 1990, and compared to where they were, there was an explosion that occurred. So that explosion is going to manifest itself and result in the next three to four years, an enormous push of first-time home buyers. But the difference between a first-time home buyer and an existing homeowner is the existing homeowner sells a home, so they put one on inventory and buys a home, so it leaves in inventory levels net neutral. When you have a first-time home buyer, they're coming out of mom and dad's place, so they're removing a home from inventory, so they deplete inventory. The only ones that put it back are builders. So you look at the difference between something called household formation, somebody leaving mom and dad and turning on the electric in their own place, and household completions, a builder putting up homes. And that disparity over the last few years is just very, very lopsided towards more households being formed and not enough builders putting up homes, exacerbated by the fact that builders were shut down for six months due to COVID in 2020. And you have a real push towards prices appreciating. I'll get into pre in, into uh, affordability in just a moment because that's a huge misconception. But this is how we correctly forecasted what happened in 2006. The reason why we called that is because builders were basing on flying high in 2001, two, three, four, and five, and building homes like crazy was very profitable for them. However, in 2006, we knew household formations were going to drop like a rock. Why? Because 33 years before that, in January of, 2000, of, of 1973, an event occurred that caused birth rates to drop precipitously. And you know, if you, if you want to have some fun with it, you can guess as to what that might be. Some people say birth control. It wasn't that. It wasn't Vietnam. It wasn't recession. It wasn't oil prices. It was one important thing, and that the Supreme Court in January of 1973 made abortions legal with the Roe v. Wade case. And when they did so, it caused birth rates to drop precipitously over the next few years. So we had builders putting homes 33 years later like crazy, but there was nobody to come to buy them. And that's what, that's what caused the housing bubble. That's what caused the housing shock that we had. Now, we reached a level in 2009 where there were 3.7 million homes for sale. Today, there is 1.1 million homes for sale, yet there are 8 million more households. This is why home prices are appreciating. Now, somebody might say, well, Barry, your home prices are appreciating. And the latest report says they're going up at 10%. So what's the scoop with that? Well, if home prices go up 10%, you would think incomes would need to go up 10%. So that's a misconception. The first thing they do, Tim, is they look at the home price values going up 10%. They don't even look at the right metric. They look at the median home price, which is going up at 16%. So they think that's 16% appreciation. It's not. Don't be confused. It's the actual level of appreciation. Median home price just means half the homes sold above that level, half the homes below. Today in the United States, it's $310,000. The reason why that number is going up is because there's no inventory on the low end. So you're actually seeing fewer sales in the low end just because there's nothing out there. You got a lot of buyers, but not enough homes. On the upper end, homes over a million dollars, that's up 90% year over year in the amount of transactions because you know, that's where the action is right now because that's what's available in inventory. You know, If you wanted to go buy AirPods at the Apple store when they first came out, and they didn't have them available because they were backlogged, doesn't mean people don't want them. It just means they weren't available. So that's what you have right now on the lower end of the housing market. Now people say, okay, so, okay, Barry, I get it. It's not 16%, it's 10, but then they see hourly earnings are going up at a little under 5%. Well, that's again, the wrong metrics. Don't look at hourly earnings. 
you look at weekly earnings. So Tim, it's pretty easy to figure out, right? If you have an employee and you and you're, have that employee working for you, rather than if you're busy, rather than having that employee do what they're doing and then hire another person, the first step is to, hey, can you work some more hours? Because I don't have to train somebody new. I don't have to pay a headhunter and I don't have to pay more benefits. So it's cheaper for the employee to say, hey, I'm going to pay for, for working more hours. So while hourly earnings are up, let's call it 5%, weekly earnings, which is what you really need to look at, yet nobody does. It just boggles my mind why people don't think about this, are up 7.5%. Now, somebody might say, okay, Barry, 7.5% is your weekly earnings rise, but homes are still going up at 10%. It's not affordable. And the media says this all the time. They don't get it because they don't do the math. Tim, math is hard. And the media doesn't do it. So here's the way it works. If you have a home, that monthly payment, you don't use all of your income for that monthly payment. Let me give you a simple example. A year ago, if you had a monthly payment that would have been $1,000 a month, simple numbers, you would have needed about a $5,000 a month income to qualify for that $1,000 a month principal and interest payment. So let's just say you didn't buy your house last year. Home values went up 10%. If interest rates stayed the same, now interest rates drop, but interest rates stay, if they stayed the same, that payment would go up by 10%, right? Because you're paying 10% more for the home. So instead of $1,000 a month, you're paying $1,100 a month. There's $100 a month less affordability, except if your income went up 7.5%, you made much more income than you needed. You made $350 a month more every month, easily covering the difference of $100 a month. But guess what, Tim? Home values, while they went up, mortgage rates went down by about 1%. So it makes that monthly payment actually $70 a month cheaper than it was a year ago. So the payment's 70 bucks a month cheaper. You're making $350 a month more. How in the world is that less affordable? If you go by the real dynamics, this is the seventh most, I know it sounds crazy, but fact, seventh most affordable housing market on record because rates are so low and because incomes are rising. This is what the metrics that people have to do. And those that do that will then be able to make the correct decision that yes, you have to be smart about it, but this is a great time to buy a home. And over the next few years, you're gonna make a lot of money with that purchase of a home. So so Barry, here's the here's the thing. And and I, I think you might agree it bothers you too. What What bothers me is like you said, it's just math. But it's actually thinking through, I mean, we just went through in just a few minutes there and you laid it out very simply, very, very well. But that doesn't fit a, a 280 character tweet or a, a snippet or a bottom scroll on a news feed. Truthfully, the unaffordability of housing fits better the narrative. It, does it just make too much sense or is it too complex for people to go one or two layers deeper? in the math. Why is, why is it so tough for us to get down to some of the base levels of the things you just talked about? I mean, you're bright, you put a lot of pieces together, but like you said, this is just math. Yeah, but, but you're, you nailed it because we're in this world of instant, you know, we don't email as much as we text. We don't call and talk as much as we text. We don't, we, we read tweets. So we're, we're looking for everything to come instantaneously, but listen, not everything is like that. And that's just the world. And we have to understand that. Then you have the other side of it, Tim, 
which is the media bias. The media will never have a bias towards good news. The media always wants to promote bad news because that's what gets them eyeballs. Eyeballs gets them ratings. Ratings get some advertising dollars. So the media will always take a negative slant. Heck, just look at the 11 o'clock news. You ever see the anchor come on and say, man, things are just great. Okay, it's, God forbid, the world is, it was really the way that the 11 o'clock news would portray it. But what they, listen, they're not in this for the good of mankind. They're in this to make money. The only way they make money is from advertisers. And advertisers will pay more if their product will be seen by more people. And the way you get more eyeballs is to work on the amygdala. The amygdala is the section of your brain that causes you to focus, remember, and pay attention when it is worried about something bad happening. And the media knows this, they're very smart. So they will always play on negativity and fear because that will get you to pay attention. That will increase the ratings, increase advertising revenue and make them more money. It's that simple. Yeah, so as one who, has been a guest on a great deal of media. I guess podcast is similar, but podcast and other things are this this whole new world for us. But as one who's been a guest, were you more often than not the contrarian? Were you the one that brought, I mean, you already mentioned that there was conflict in 06 and 11, but uh, was, the, was the contrarian view what you brought to the table or just, I would say the the thinking man's view, the practical view, but, but um, how did you fit in with that world? Because you, you have been around it and you still are uh, a a frequent guest on those shows. Yes. Since 1992, believe it or not. So um, the thing of it is, Tim, is that you just want to call it as you see it is want to call without bias. Like for example, okay, the housing market, I'm very, very bullish on. I think that that that's a, a great place to be the stock market. And who knows, I could be dead wrong. It, this is something that reminds me a lot of where we were about 20 years ago. And while, as Mark Twain said, it may not repeat itself exactly, history does tend to rhyme. There are so many rhymes that I see here. And, uh, you know, the first thing in the stock market is by every single valuation metrics, every single one, this market is the most expensive market in history. It's not in the 70th, 80th, 90th percent. It's in the 100th percentile in almost, you know, price to earnings, price to book, price to sell. You, you go down the list. And you will see that this market is about as expensive as it's ever been. Now, this can continue, you know, as, as we, we know the, the old saying, right? You know, the market can be irrational longer than you and I can remain solvent, right? John Maynard Keynes said that. But what we have to please be careful of here is just have your antenna up a little bit because I watched this happen 20 years ago. You know, one of my mentors, I remember him telling me, he said, Barry, you know, somebody's going to pull the plug on this someday. And look, the other thing is the, the, the saying that the stock market will do the no, most harm to the most people at the worst time. And I am just a little bit concerned, let's put it that way, that not only is this market expensive, but a lot of the telltale signs. Look, in 1929, John F. Kennedy's dad, Joe Kennedy, accurately forecasted the stock market crash when he got a shoe shine and the shoe shine boy started talking stocks. The dot-com bubble exploded when everybody was in the market once again, because you had day traders all over that now had access to the internet and we used to show pictures of cab drivers doing this, okay? And today with Robinhood, people are talking about the stock market. I was my chiropractor this morning and I overheard as they come in, the two chiropractors talking about, oh, do you get into this stock? Do you get it? And listen, this just rhymes so much with where we were right at the end. And that's not only just the, the things you see in GameStop, It is this type of activity, which always has historically led to it. And why? Because it's a level of euphoria 
that everyone's in the market. And if everybody's in the market, as Joe Kennedy said, when he got the shoeshine boy talking about the stock market, he said, where's the new money going to come from to push prices higher? You use the word contrarian. As a contrarian, you want to look at indicators that when it's too bullish, too much euphoria, that's a time to be scared. You know, Warren Buffett, be fearful when others are greedy. There's a lot of greed right now. Okay, maybe be fearful. You know, Sir John Templeton said you want to be a seller on the most optimistic day, a buyer on the most pessimistic day. He also said that bull markets are born on pessimism, grow on skepticism, mature on optimism, and die on euphoria. Well, Citigroup every week comes out with a panic euphoria index. A level over 0.41 indicates some degree of euphoria. The dot-com bubble burst at 1.5. We are now at 2 the highest reading in its existence. So team, all I'm saying is that I could be dead wrong. All I'm saying is it pays to just have your antenna up and be a little cautious. Now I watch, I, I, I'm pretty good at technical analysis. I teach technical analysis and you look at Japanese candlesticks and I've done a lot of studying and historical on this. There's a saying in Japanese that's translated to English. It says, fear does not leave on a donkey. Meaning that if, Investors get scared. They're not going to walk out or down. They're running for the exits. And if you're not paying attention, you could get whipsawed. Look at those people that bought GameStop at $500 because for those people who sold, somebody bought it at 500 bucks too. You know, at 50 bucks, that $500 investment doesn't look too good right now. So we need to be very cautious about the overall uh, overall stock market and you can you can protect yourself with things like the vix you could put you could put some of your money in some short positions on the overall market just hedge your bets just be careful is all i'm trying to say this level of activity has my antenna up personally yeah that's good because that actually was a question you led right into a question i was going to ask and that is what concerns you now and so you you read my mind which is great uh, the, I guess more of a follow-up, and in, in, in just a few moments uh, for the listener and for you, I'm going to kind of dive into a few things you covered in your book because I, I love people's mindset. And one of the things we love to do on this show is to kind of go back and see how someone like Barry develops the mindset that you currently have. And I know you write about that in your book a good bit, and we'll talk a little bit about growing up. But a few more of these type questions because I can't get off of them. In fact, I could probably talk about these for the entire show, but... Uh, um, you mentioned what concerns you, and and you're talking about the the stock market and the way it's going up. I've I've wondered, and so I'll ask this. I'll pose it as a question to someone like you who's done the technical analysis, because we essentially have. This is my words. Maybe this is correct or not. Easy money out there available now for large institutions at you know rates at essentially zero. Is that part of what's feeding it? Is it some of the things you talked about earlier? Is it just a byproduct of the way we're in where we've got apps like Robinhood and all where average Joe can do whatever or these, you know, younger people are now in, in getting in the market? Is it just the cycle that we're in? What is feeding yeah, yeah, all, all this? of those things? Okay. You're, you're right on everything. You're, you're right on everything. Um, so the reason I'm, I'm, my antenna's up and I'm a little fearful is because the market's expensive and expensive not because prices are higher prices that are higher can be justified if earnings were there if economic conditions were there but this is all baloney here this is all based upon steroids that have been provided you know you you, you get a check for two thousand dollars it's either going into DraftKings or Robinhood, okay and you've got uh, companies that 
Some guys are doing. Is well, there a different? Is there a difference between the two? Is there a difference between DraftKings and Robin Hood? Really? <laughs> no, no. Uh, for most people, unfortunately, no. And then you've got interest rates at levels where we've got Tina. There is no alternative. T I N A. There is no alternative. And and look, it's so funny to hear people like Janet Yellen talk about you know income inequality and we've got to do so. Well, she created it. Okay, she created it because by pushing rates to zero, which she did. Okay. Her and Ben Bernanke. So they bring rates to zero. And then after they do, they punish anybody trying to save money. So what they wanted to do, they did this willfully, purposely, and they said that this is what their plan was. They made everybody push their money to the stock market. Stock prices, because everybody was going to get in it, rose dramatically, created a lot of wealth. But that wealth effect, which is a coined phrase by Ben Bernanke, wealth effect, and Ben Bernanke, for those of you who don't know, was the Fed chair prior to Janet Yellen, okay? And when you have a wealth effect that was created, people felt better, spent more, bought more stuff, and that was designed to try and boost the economy. Well, what you did, though, is you created a wealth gap because now you have people that were able to get into the stock market, create all this wealth, and those left behind in a much more meaningful way. So it's such a farce and a joke to hear, John, oh, we've got to do something. We'll do something because you created it, because you, you, you proliferated it. You were the one behind doing this, and now you want to take the stand and say, oh, well, we should do something. Well, yeah, to fix your problem that you created. So when you take a look at what's gone on in the stock market and why prices are so high, yeah, there is no alternative. And people have thrown caution to the wind and say valuations don't matter. They don't matter until they do. One day they will. One day it will matter. And as I said, it's going to be a rude awakening. This is rinse and repeat from 21 years ago. And you will see so many similarities of you know, the names are different. Yahoo was the big name back then, or the other, you know, those of you that remember, they, they, you know, today it's 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 Neo and Snowflake. And this, I mean, so this is what we just have. It's not based upon fundamentals. It is a Elon Musk tweet, and then things go crazy. It's not the yeah. company is creating something, doing something, making these profits. It's just. You know, let's find a way to squeeze shorts. Let's find a way to just crowd everybody into a trade. And what it's called, it's called pump and dump. It's a nice way of saying pump and dump. It is a Ponzi scheme that is being, that, that, that one day somebody is going to be left holding the bag on. And I just think that we need to be, it doesn't mean get out of the stock market completely. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow, but there will be a day that valuations matter and the valuations just aren't there right now. Yeah, one one thing that I want to ask, I'm trying to ask something on behalf of the listener who's sitting sitting here, and we may have lost them with some of this conversation. I hope not. I hope they're on board with us. We also have a lot of listeners outside of the U.S. also, and some of the things we've been discussing is primarily U.S. But Barry, I, I want to add, before we move on to another topic, Rock of Ages, your book and, and mindset and things like that, I would love for you to... I, and I know we don't want to give financial advice. That's not what we're doing here. We're not telling people do this, don't do this. But, but for the person that maybe their head's swimming a little bit from this conversation we've had in the first 10, 15 minutes, and they're going, what do I do about it? What If someone comes to you, family member, friend, whatever, and says, hey, Barry, I know you know a lot about this stuff, but what should I do? What do you tell them? What's your Well, it's different advice? for everybody. Yeah. It's, it's different for everybody, Tim. You know, people have different levels of income, different levels of debt. They're different ages. They've got different goals. Uh, but in general, 
um, you know, if you're younger and have a lot of time, then the stock market is probably a little bit safer. If you might need access to those funds over the shorter term, you know, the stock market right now, um, it's been proven that every time stock levels get to these types of multiples, meaning that what the company earns versus what the stock price is, is, uh, is trading at, yields very compromised gains over the next 10 years and sometimes losses. So if you have a long time, you could overcome that. So what do I, what assets do I like? I like precious metals. Uh, I, I've been saying Bitcoin since it was at 6,000, it's you know, 40,000 now. So, uh, and, and that's because we're debasing our currency. So I like silver, I like gold. I like silver a little bit more than gold because normally it's an 80 to one trade. It's closer to 68 to one now. So silver has a little more arbitrage in it. So I like them, but gold, I like a lot too. Uh, gold's going to go higher. Gold's going to break 2000. So, you know, these, these are, these, these are the reason for these is because fiat currency is trying to be debased. All this, all this uh, financial engineering and quantitative easing, it's causing the dollar to sink, but other nations are doing the same thing. So it's a race to the bottom in their currency valuation. What those fiat, fiat currency devaluations do is they boost the price of a fixed uh, something that's called a currency like gold or silver or Bitcoin. So you can you can definitely benefit from that. And it's a good place to be with a portion of your assets. I like real estate, as I mentioned, a lot. And believe it or not, I like longer term bonds because while in the short term, I see rates going up. People talk about rates going to go sky high, inflation. Inflation will not last. It's, it's a spurt that you will get of economic activity based on the stimulus. But then what's left behind is the bill. It's kind of like if a family goes out and they buy a car. Initially, you get a spurt of economic activity. The uh, dealership, the manufacturer, the salesperson, they all make money. They spend it. It's crazy economic activity. But what's left behind is that family now has an $800 or $900 a month bill for the next five years that will slow their spending. And when you do that with multiples of people, when you do that when governments are doing it and borrowing the way that they are. Remember, we're not printing money. We're borrowing. Thank the good Lord for that. Okay. So by borrowing this money, and this week is very, it's historic. This will be the most amount of treasuries auctioned off. That's how we do this. When we do the stimulus, we don't have the money. We have to borrow it. And we borrow by selling treasuries. We sell 30-year bonds, 10-year notes, three-year notes. This is what we do, one-year bills. As we sell these, we get the money in, we pay for the stimulus, but what's left behind is we've got to pay those people that bought the bonds interest. And those interest payments slow the amount of cash that can go back into the economy and create what's called velocity of money or economic activity. This is what will drag down growth. Technology will keep inflation low and inflation is the main driver of interest rates. So we think that interest rates are going to be in a really good position for a long time. It would not surprise me to see the Fed do something called yield curve control. They did it after World War II to peg interest rates at a very, very low level. So I think that bonds can be a good place to be because you'll make some capital appreciation. I see rates maybe going up in the short term, uh, but I think that they'll trend back down. And not only you know, people say, well, how do I make money in the bond market? I'll make one or 2%. Yeah, but if one or 2% is where you lock in at and the rate goes to a half a percent, well, you make 20, 30, 40% on your money, on your investment, because you'd be holding a rate that's much more attractive. So I believe you can make money in the bond market too. Stock market, I just be careful, just be selective. You know, uh, chasing this craziness, you could do it, but then you have to just decide, are you investing or are you gambling? And if you, if you want to gamble, then gamble, then that's great. Then you should do that. But if you truly are thinking that you're making good investment decisions, you know, there's probably better ways for you to at least analyze the stock market, make sure the companies that you're investing in really do have either potential or earnings or really good fundamentals. 
because otherwise, you know, you could come become a big winner, sure, but that's that's more luck. You know, you could go if if I went to Las Vegas and bet black, I didn't invest in it. Okay, I, I just threw money at something, and yeah, it turned out if I won, great. But what if I lost? You know, so this is the decisions that you just have to. Uh, have to have to think about Tim. So, you know, I, I know that you said some people maybe weren't, I, I believe that just about everybody follows this because I think we've broken it down in a way that's very easy to follow and very simple to understand. So I'd be surprised if people weren't following this. Very good. I hope so. And and I love, I love some of the things you said because you basically described my philosophies and I do not have the expertise that you have in that arena. So that's very exciting to me. I love metals. I love, I love what's happening with crypto. I don't think a lot of people can understand what's going on there, but boy, I I love anything that's a hedge against what they're doing to our money currently. So thank you for sharing all of that. I'm going to shift just a little bit, actually probably make a hard shift because when anyone hears an introduction of yours or they read your book, and I know you just got, you talk about this a good bit in your book, you bring up this really cool thing that you did where you did some production of some Broadway and you've done some things for you know the, the shows in, in Vegas and, and participated in movies. And I think this is the, the interesting thing. We're in a culture where that fascinates people more than talking about money. That, that could be a challenge, by the way, that people would much more talk about Rock of Ages than talk about, uh, you know, hedges against what all's happening with the debasing of our currency. But I'm going to shift and I'd love for you to just briefly tell the story of how you... Uh, went from the businesses you were running and you, you had, you were exposed. I think, you know, earlier we were talking about how you, the friction, you know, you broke the friction between customers and how you believe in spoiling customers and that kind of linked it together. But talk a little bit about that journey from what you were doing into the arena of entertainment, we'll call it. And maybe there'll be a question or two there, but I just want to satisfy the person listening saying, make sure we talk about Rock of Ages and how cool that was. So my, my parents were, were immigrants. They came here very, very poor. Government took pretty much everything they had. They were a lot older. My dad was 57. My mom was 40 when I was born. And thank goodness abortion was not legal at that point in time because I wouldn't be here. So I got, I got in, get this, okay, birth control. After I was conceived, only a few months later, birth control came out. Okay, so I slipped in there. I slipped in before abortion. So this, this is like bonus time for me, right? But I was really, really poor. My parents were a lot older. My dad died when I was a very young kid. My mom literally worked in a sweatshop where they make dresses. I keep a picture of it right behind me there as always a reminder of, you know, that's where we came from. And, you know, here's the thing is that anybody that's listening to this, anybody that maybe isn't in a position right now where you uh, are happy about where you are, you don't have to stay there. That's all your decision. That's your mindset. And even if you're, if, if it's, if you're not happy with where you are, it doesn't mean you don't have to be, you can't be happy. There's a big distinction there. You'd say, hey, I'm not happy with where I am, but I can still be happy because the way you laugh about something and the way the richest person on earth laughs about something is the same feeling. So you could feel the same exact way as the most successful richest person on earth if you just take a second to appreciate what you have, to be grateful for what you have and enjoy what you have, but also to strive for going forward and set those goals. And we talk a lot about that. That's what really the book is about. The book is about seeing opportunities and getting there, getting through tough times, which we all do. Every single one of us suffers, but also maximizing the good times, which is something that not a lot of people talk about when you're on a roll, because all of us experience that things are going your way. How do I maximize that? And one of the ways that I was able to do that is just by, you know, 
observing and looking at things just with a bigger point of view. So when I was in the mortgage business, I was the top producer in the mortgage industry for a couple of years back in the 90s. That's the entire mortgage industry. And, you know, a lot of that had to do with educating myself and trying to be the very best I could be so that I had something to offer. People want to be magnetic. Here's the secret to being magnetic. Everybody you come into contact with, make them feel better, make them feel smarter. It's that simple because who doesn't want to crave that? Who doesn't want to be in touch with somebody that makes them feel better, that makes them feel smarter? You can do that for people, but you can't give what you don't have. So you have to put in the time in advance so you have something to give others to make them feel smarter. And you can always make feel people feel better, not the BS way. You can really search and find things. You could seek, go, and create making somebody feel better. Now, what, what you want to be able to do here is observe what's going on. How many times have all of us said, oh, well, I wish that were better or this doesn't work? Well, how can you make constructive adjustments to that? So when I was in the mortgage business, I would watch so many people struggle and suffer with you know, rate locks and they got a rate that they were disappointed with. So I said, well, you know, I really watched the market. So why don't I not just do it for myself, but let me just do it for the whole industry. And I started a company and created that company, built it, it became ubiquitous. And then when I didn't like the way the market was, I sold that and did really well with that. And then I started a medical imaging business. Why? Because when I would get scans, and I hope that everybody here is listening is healthy, but if you've had to, you know the deal. The tech sees that they know what the result is, they know how to read it, but I don't know how to read that stuff. Most of you don't know how to read that stuff. And they can't tell you what's going on. And you're curious. So unless you have your doctor's cell phone and your Rolodex, you might wait four, five, six, seven, a weekdays to get the results. And your brain gives you so much anxiety and you worry. Why do you have to put people through that? So I said, let me put a radiologist right there. By the time my clients got dressed, they sat in a beautiful room. And if it was good news, man, they walked out of there like a champ. If it wasn't good news, we gave people what they wanted, a plan, hope, what comes next take the anxiety out of their brain and give them a way to give them some level of certainty so they know what they're dealing with and they know what they could do. People need to be able to progress and move forward. If you ask me to define happiness in one word, I'd say it's progress. You know, I, I, maybe after the holidays, I wanted to lose 10 pounds, but if, I'm, if I've lost five, I haven't hit my goal, but I'm feeling good because I'm making progress, okay? So this is where we all need to understand that this is how you start to relieve those situations. Now, because of all those years on CNBC, Somebody had said to me, say, hey, Barry, you know, I think, we, you know, this back in the day, Tim, I was actually a pretty decent looking guy. They said, we want to put you in some movies. And I was like, yeah, wow, I'm going to be like the next Hollywood star, right? Like, what the heck did I know? So they put me in this kid's movie. Um, they dressed me up in this pastel thing with a white beard, and a big house, Colonel Kaboom. And that was my first movie opportunity. But you know what I did? I took advantage of that. I met people, I networked, and I learned. And then I got another opportunity. And, and, and then another opportunity. And eventually I got to this movie, it was in an all-star cast. I've been in some pretty good movies, all with speaking roles, nine movies. And it was, it was called Barry Monday, M-U-N-D-A-Y. And if you pull up the trailer for it, which you can, you'll see I made the trailer. I play a doctor in the movie. It's a great movie. It's got an all-star cast and I've got a few appearances in it. And the guy who wrote it, brilliant guy, Chris Dorenzo, again, networking, be friendly, you know, be magnetic, talk to people. And through that networking and being magnetic with Chris Dorenzo, he showed me the script to Rock of Ages. And then that's when I fell in love with it. It was a good thing, Tim. I wasn't very bright when it came to Broadway shows and didn't know how tough it was to do it and how many of them lose money. But I did it with my heart because I believed in it, put the show first off Broadway. It was a big surprise success and then made the really silly decision 
of putting, taking the risk of putting it on Broadway, but again, I believed in it, really was biting my nails. And then the New York Times came out with a great review and everybody reviewed it great. It became, you know, 27 longest running show of Broadway history all over the world, you know, Toronto, London, Vegas, toured the US, Korea, you, know, you, you Australia, you name it. We've been everywhere. Major motion picture with Tom Cruise. I play the record producer in the movie. Um, so that was a wonderful life experience. But the thing of it is, is that when I would go to the theater, I would see people come in and it'd be in New York. New York City was the first show in Broadway. They come in a little late. They'd wait online then to get an adult beverage. They want to get a cocktail. The cocktails are expensive at the theater. And then they get it. And then the lights would flicker at time for the show to begin. Ding, ding. Now you can't bring your drink to the seat so that you'd have to waste some of it or guzzle some of it, pour it over their nice dress or suit that they were wearing. And I was like, why does that have to be? And the theater owner, I said, why don't we just let them take their drinks to the seats? And the theater said, it's no, Barry, that's never been done before in Broadway. Well, if you know me, that's not a good answer for me, Tim. Okay, <laughs> so what I did was I, I fought and fought and fought and I became the first show in the history of Broadway to allow drinking in the seats. And now they all do it. So that was a point of friction. So as we look at these different areas and just some examples of removing points of friction, you create a much better experience. So you can profit from it via efficiency, you could profit from it by a customer experience. But these are the types of things that we all have access to. It's just a matter of seeing, you know, the title of my book is Money in the Streets. And, and that's because with Money in the Streets, every, every person who's an immigrant came to the United States, and people say, Oh, man, the United States, America is such a rich country, there's gold in the streets, there's money in the streets, all you got to do is bend down and pick it up. And when I was a kid, my mom would tell me this. And she would laugh, but it was also sad saying, do you believe we, you know, people told us and we thought there was really money in the streets, there was really gold in the streets. And what I discovered was through all these little businesses that I've been blessed with the opportunity of creating and, and participating in, that there really is money in the streets. All you have to do is see it and then pick it up and do good with it for others. And that's, the truth is that you can have this. I remember before my mom passed, I sat with her and I said, you know, mom, you were right. There really is money in the streets. Just most people don't see it or they don't want to see it. You know, you, you, what you look for, you know, you start off with your podcast with the word seek. And, you know, if I said to you, okay, now the, your, your office that you're in or your, your bedroom or your living room, count how many things in there are blue. You probably search your brain and you might get a few, right? But now if I said to you, okay, look around one more time, but this time really look for blue, how many more items would you find that are blue? You, you focus on what you're looking for. And if you're looking to have removal of point of friction, if you're looking for success, if you're looking for a mate, whatever it is that you're looking for, if you focus on it and you spend time on it, you'll find it. So the first thing is, is seek because that's what's really critical. But then once you find it, what is your action? That's why I love your title here because go, what are you doing? And that's absolutely critical because how many people see things, see opportunities, but then they don't act on it. They talk themselves out of it. A little voice in your head. Oh no. And look, the fact of the matter is it's always easy to do no action. No action is easy. You don't have to do anything, but you're not going to yeah. get anything out. Let me pause you one one second here, Barry. That that was excellent there because that was exactly what I wanted to to kind of get uh, get some more detail on. But one of the things, kind of one of our underlying themes, we see this developing over and over in our conversations with all that we do, 
is this term which is redefined success. And, and I really think that we define success all along the way. I think that we define, redefine, define, redefine. Because uh, if we were to go back to Barry and, you know, the early 60s as a kid, there was probably different perspective. You probably were developing the mindset of success, but it probably didn't look like anything. If we were to inject what you've done to, you know, younger Barry, you would go, wow, I can't even really conceive that. So it's really a constant process. Through a few of the items, either uh, the, the, the Rock of Ages or businesses, can you give an example of two or two of when you've really you had a paradigm shift about what success looked like or what it meant. A lot of people like to throw this in the failure category. I don't. I do, I do agree that sometimes it could look like failure from the outside in, but to me, it's just part of the process. Can you think of a time or two where you've just had to like rethink or redefine what you thought success was? That's it's my, my whole life. Um, so I love this question every day, so much. every day, <laughs> every, every single day. I love this question yeah. so much. So just, just me. So, you know, I start off my dad, like a little coffee in the morning, but then right after that, I literally start by saying out loud all the things I'm grateful for. So I start every day with gratitude every day. And I'm a spiritual person. So I also pray in the morning too and wish for good things. But the thing that, that having that mindset of gratitude allows you to do is deal with the invariable tough situations that are going to happen because, you know, I've kind of got a rule that if something upsets me, I'm human, I'm going to get pissed, but let me keep it to two minutes because I don't want it to rob my joy. And I want it to rob the joy that I can bring to others. So if we try to kind of just stay in that positive mind frame, and by the way, a common thread among successful people, optimism. So keeping that optimistic mindset. Now, if somebody says, well, I'm not optimistic. Well, if you want to be more successful, just learn to be more optimistic. Okay. You know, like I didn't know how to drive a car, but then I learned, okay. Same with people, you know, so don't, don't make it just because you don't know, you can't do it. You can do anything. So when we, when we take a look and we say what defines success. So the first thing you have to do is you have to be mindful and purposeful. How many of you leave the, the house in the morning and you think about why am I doing this? Is it for money? Don't be ashamed because making money is important. Okay. And you could do a lot of good for others by making money. Is it for your kids? Is it for your parents? Is it for your significant other? Think about that and see how much more it gives you to do that every day. So now here's the thing. You also have to set goals. You, you don't get in the car if you don't know where you're going and just start driving and hope you get there. Okay. But that's how many people go through life. What we should be doing is just like you put in a destination at your GPS, you put your destination. But remember, there's a lot of turns along the way. So while you have your ultimate destination, daily, you should say, how am I gonna get there? Most of us play defense. You don't score on defense, right? Baseball team, you can't score on defense. You only score when you're on offense. So by being on offense all the time means that you are pushing your plan forward and your goals forward. But here's the secret. See, Tim, hitting your goals, whether they be success-based, financial-based, is critical, yes, but it's still missing a lot because how many people do we know that are so successful or so wealthy, but that are so unhappy or have other demons or troubles? You see, they're missing fulfillment. And Tim, fulfillment comes from helping others. And that's what people are oftentimes afraid to do. You see, if you really wanna be happy, know that what you're doing is good and see the results of what you're doing for other people. That's what gives you the fulfillment along with your own achievement of personal goals, which you continue to push down and further and strive for more. So you should always go through life with one hand reaching forward, always. 
but you should also have one hand reaching back to help others along with you. And that's what gives you fulfillment and happiness along with the success. Yeah, that's so good, Barry. Thank you for that. I knew that you would have a rich answer for some type of a question like that because of experience and all that. There was, there's a little bit more of a, I don't know, this may be a practical type question. You briefly mentioned, I had written a lot of the questions I've asked, I didn't have written down because we've kind of, kind of moved around and they've come in the moment. But one of the questions I had down to ask you was with all of, with all of the projects, all the businesses, all the things that you have that you work on, I wanted to ask a little bit about your daily habit. You gave us a glimpse just a second ago into your morning habits. You get up, you show gratitude, you spend some time in prayer. Anything else that's a, a daily habit, practical daily habit that you could share? Because I, I really look at you and consider you a high performer. And a lot of people like to learn from that. Anything else you could share about some, some well, things you Well, I got to get better at it. I got to get better at it, but meditating is, is I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying. I'm just, I get, my brain just gets distracted easily. And I, and I have a tough time setting aside the time to do it because I keep a pretty full schedule, but I, I am doing it not as regularly as I'd like, and I do want to get better. So I'm a work in progress with meditation, but I do see benefit there. Uh, exercise is really important. Uh, so I spend half my time in Florida, half my time here in New Jersey, which has got so much snow right now. I wish I was in Florida, but I'm, I'm God willing, I'm supposed to go back Wednesday. I go back and forth. So um, when I'm here, I'm really good. I have a train. I train like pretty much every day here to try and stay healthy because my my eating is, I love food, you know? So I, I kind of, I've, I've been, I have a hard time. It's always been a struggle. It's not easy for me. So I try and do good there. Um, and when I'm in Florida, I'm not as good, but I'm trying. So listen, wherever you are in life it doesn't mean you don't have struggles man i've got so many struggles and so many things that i try and do good on and try and be better on but basically you know part of your daily routine is is, is really trying to do good you know just, are you doing good for yourself are you moving in the right direction doesn't mean you're not going to stumble and are you doing good for others are you are you helping people are you bringing people along are you are you when you learn something are you learning it just to consume for yourself or you're saying, wow, how can this help other people that are important in my life that they can learn from this? You know, and are you spending enough time growing your brand? Look, the, we talked about investments when we opened up, right? And we talked about all these investments. You know what the best investment on earth is? Right between your ears, your mind. You know, if you can just simply grow your knowledge and, you know, talk about being magnetic. We said making you feel smarter. Well, how do you do that? You grow your own knowledge. And you know what's crazy to me is, is so many people have turnover in their life, turnover in their business, and they look at our business and they see, you know, well, most of our relationships are very, very long-term. That doesn't mean I haven't had flaws. I've been divorced twice. You know, I've learned some hard lessons there because I was so poor. I focused all my energy on work and not enough at home, so I screwed up. And, I, you know, it's, that's, that's what I have to learn. But the thing of it is, is that when I see people that, you know, from a, from a work perspective, they are um, trying and struggling to, you know, to put the pieces together. We just have to remember that uh, when, when we are in a situation of growing our brain and growing our mind, that you'll keep more people because rather than throwing dollars at them, okay, and I'm not saying it doesn't have to happen sometimes. If you're able to simply make those people feel like they're growing mentally by being close to you, they'll want to stay with you. 
And the other really important one, Tim, is appreciation and, and, and showing that most people are not appreciated in life. You know, you look at a lot of folks that are you know, maybe a single parent and, you know, they have a hard time at work and then they come home and they get their kids give them a hard time. And then they've got all these things they've got to do on their own and all their struggles. And man, you know what? Just a little appreciation for that person. You know what it does to lift them? You don't have to give them stuff. You know, how about appreciating and not bullshit, real appreciation. If they do something that you see, tell them that you appreciate it. Show them that. And heck, if you're an employer, don't ever wait for somebody to ask you for a raise. Notice them and give it to them beforehand. Your employees will go through a brick wall for you, okay? Because in life, people crave appreciation because it's it's so scarce. Everybody's afraid or jealous or I don't want to get... Have that mindset of of abundance, of, of wanting to give. You know, people want to build connections, right? And how do I build? You don't build connections by asking. You build connections by giving, by offering. Mm. Start with that. Start with figuring out what you could do to help somebody and then watch the law of reciprocity come around and watch them want to help you. Yeah, I love the theme here. There's so many things I've written down. I take notes while I'm while I'm doing our conversations here and 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 helping others, gratitude and uh, reaching out to other people. Uh, so many things you've brought up, Barry, just in conversation speaks to don't focus just on yourself other than investing in your mindset and then reaching out to others. And I just I, I love the power of that. And I so appreciate you sharing that because to me, that's what the world needs right now are more people that are thinking that way. I, I do believe that the best way to work on mindset is reading and your book, Money in the Streets, I think is a great tool for that. Uh, I Before we finish wrapping up here, we've got a few more questions, but I, I do want to ask, what was the catalyst for writing your book, Money in the Streets? And then I'm going to go ahead and give you the follow-up question so you can move right into that. What do you want people to take away from reading this book? So what was the catalyst and what do you want people to take away from your book, Money in the Streets? You know, I, I wanted to write a book for a long time. I've been so darn busy with stuff and it just was, I was tired of making excuses to myself. So I just, I just started to, I just started to tackle it and it took over a year to do so. And, and, you know, I didn't have a ghostwriter. I didn't want that. You know, I wanted it to be for me and I didn't want to write a book that was just about a business or an expertise or something like that. I wanted it to be a book from the heart to really reach out and help people. So what I wanted people to get from the book is knowing that they have the ability to see opportunities if they just change their focus. They have the ability to take advantage of those opportunities if they just change their mindset. And they can be happy with those opportunities based upon some of the stuff that, that we, we talked about today. So um, that was very important to me. And you know, I was very, very blessed that you know, Tony Robbins, who's you know, just an amazing human being, wrote a wonderful endorsement in the book, has promoted the book because he believes in it. Randy Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg's sister who created Facebook Live, she wrote the forward in the book because she believed in it so much. So, you know, this is a book that that I want to be able to help people. When I did the Audible on it, there are professional book readers out there that probably would do a better job than me, Tim. But I want it to be in my voice. So it's kind of like a home-cooked meal, you know, it's it's pretty tasty, but it's got some, the edges might be a little burned on, whatever, but um, but it's from the heart. And that's what it's about. It's about a book that speaks to your heart. And that's the most important thing, Tim. When I was a kid, 
I was a decent athlete and I had a dream of being a professional athlete and I was on the team in high school, but as I got to college, it seemed like people just got better than I did and I couldn't, couldn't cut it. And it wasn't because I didn't try. It wasn't because I didn't have the heart. I was to practice early, stayed late, kind of read stuff. So I really wanted it, but I just didn't have the God-given talent. And that's the thing about sports that's wonderful, but also not fair, right? Um, in most of the things we do in life, whether it's sales or in business or whatever it is, it doesn't matter if somebody's faster, stronger, can jump high. That All that doesn't matter. It matters one thing, heart. How much are you willing to put into this to be successful? A relationship. How much are you willing to put in? Are you willing to go to the levels that it takes to make it successful? And that's the only factor because then everything else stems from that. You know, that means that I have to get skills. That means I have to learn. That means I have to make it value. All these things that have to come of it begin with the heart, the commitment, the making the decision to yourself that you're going to move forward. And, you know, I hope that somebody listening today is thinking about something that they want to do. Listen, what's holding you back? Just do it. Just, you, you have the, you have the ability. Just, just do it. Just make the decision you're going to do it and then just go after it. My son, Dan loves to tell a story about when I started one of these companies and it's great to hear from Dan himself. He says, he says, dad, I always remember. He said, he says, it was really such a great moment. He, said, he was younger. And I said, I was going to start this company. I says, Dan, I think that we're going to start this company. It was one of the other companies I started called Mortgage Market Guide. And I said, you know, Dan, you know, what's the difference between people that just talk about it and some people who really are, are successful is actually doing it and making the commitment. And I'm telling you now, I'm making the commitment to do this. And that's all it takes. And everyone listening has the ability to do that. Wow. You know, and I, I will say from reading the book that that is that is one of the things that really jumped out at me because, listen, I, I read a lot. I'm sure you consume a lot and read a lot of books, too. And and there's a lot of really, really good books. There's a lot of great books. There's a lot of crappy books out there, too. But uh, and and I gravitate towards maybe a business mindset type book. But I love story. And Barry, I think what you were able to do very well, and I encourage people to get a copy of the book is you were able to incorporate story with personal development, with the business examples throughout it also. That's what I love because it brought together a lot of things that I truly love. So I encourage people to pick that up. And, you know, I've got so many things that I would love to go into, but I also want to be mindful of our time. So why don't we do this, Barry? Let's, uh, let's do a couple things to wrap up. How we've covered so many things and could have gone into more detail, but I think we've had a, have a, had a real good feel for some of the things that you could bring to the table with people. How can people connect with you? Where do you want someone to go if they go, you know what, I want to be around this guy or I want to find out more or whatever. How can people connect with you? Really easy on social media. You know, LinkedIn's a really easy one or Facebook or, uh, or, or, uh, or Instagram. You know, I'm on those platforms. I'm on Clubhouse too. But easy if you wanted to connect there. Um, my company that I spend most of the time with is MBS Highway. Uh, that's a company I created. It's first started to kind of focus on interest rates, but it really helps people make the right decision on housing. And this that's just, just very easy or you could pick up the book, which I hope you decide to do. And uh, you could do that either on Audible or on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And, and, and I think it'll be meaningful for you. Yeah, the cool thing is, is I actually read it but I'm sitting here listening to your voice and you kind of were a little bit, you know, downplaying your ability to do it. But I can actually see that your voice would be very powerful on the audible uh, aspect of it, too. So that is that is really cool. Well, Barry, the title of our show is Seek 
Go Create. And you actually already maybe covered some of this and did a great job of it. But which one of those words jumps out at you, resonates with you over the other two right now as we're speaking and why? And this is the final question and then I'll wrap up. Because all three are so important and they all really are needed. You know, it's like three, three foot feet on the stool, you know, the three pedestals of a stool, a three-legged stool. You know, it's not going to stand great with just one or two of them, right? So you need all three, but it starts with C. And, you know, that the old Chinese proverb, a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step, right? So so C. And and that's a lot of what the book covers is, is how do you see opportunities? Be aware. And I'll tell you a very quick story here. I like to drive on the track. It's something that I enjoy doing. But like with everything else, I like to learn and I want to be good at it. So as I've gone through many lessons, I've got one I'm going to do February 16th in, in Florida too. So spend the day with a professional driver and they just help you become a better driver. It's not, listen, I'm not going to be a race car driver, but when I drive, I want to drive better. I want to drive safer, right? And one of the best lessons I learned that I'll share with everybody because it'll make you a better driver is this simple. My instructor one day said, Barry, I noticed that you watch the car in front of you quite a bit. And I said, well, I guess I wasn't really paying attention. And he says, um, yeah, he says, just about everybody who drives does that. He said, but your focus should be further down the road so you can see things happening. And I said, oh, okay. You know, I'm trying to learn. I'm saying, oh, okay, yeah. And I could tell that he wanted to take it deeper with me. So he said, okay, Barry, let's pull over for a minute. Makes me pull the car over, takes my bottle of water. He says, grab the bottle of water. And then he makes me put the bottle of water down and step back about 20 feet from it. And he says, now the bottle of water is on the ground. He says, I want you to look at the bottle of water. I said, okay, I'm looking at it. He says, can you read the sign up ahead? I said, no. He says, okay, now look at the sign up ahead. Can you still see the bottle of water? I said, yes. He said, Barry, see if you do that, if you simply change your focus to look bigger and seek greater things, he says, you'll still see the stuff in front of you, but you won't miss that stuff out there. And he says, if you do it behind the wheel, you know, as a, on a racetrack, you'll be able to know where to position your car for the turns. But also if there's something bad happening, your reaction time is greater because you can see it faster and you have more time to react. Now, if anybody does this, you're going to be a much better driver. But if you do it in life, you can't help but be more successful. Wow, Barry, thank you. That was, that's like an exclamation point on our conversation. Thank you for sharing that. What a powerful and great conversation. If you've been listening in, I know you've been blessed by this conversation. Please reach out and share this with anyone. Share it with someone that you believe that they would get benefit from this. And I do encourage you to go get a copy of Barry's book. I've read it. I've got it. It's excellent. And thank you for that. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, continue the conversation. We're on all the socials, our website, seatgocreate.com, and continue having this dialogue because as Barry even mentioned earlier, this is not success and all that we're doing in life. It's not an event, it's a process. And we just want what we're doing here to be part of that process. We have new episodes every Monday. Make sure that you join us. Thanks for listening in. And until next time, continue being all that you were created to be. Oh,